Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 98, The Tulip Era. Now, first, the kind of run of uh, of brand new supporters, new Patreon supporters that's been going on this September continues with Christina Beck and Georgi G. So, Georgi, it was cool meeting you recently, and thanks so much, Christina. Really, yeah, this is uh, the the biggest kind of uh, increase in support we've had in more than two years. I think like about two and a half years almost. So it really means a lot. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, particularly now, everything's really intense, getting ready to see my family in the U.S. for the first time in two years. Uh, that's expensive. Uh, it's always hard going from Bulgaria back to the U.S., but you are helping a ton, and I can't thank you enough. And also, we're coming up on episode 100. Now, in a way, this is episode 100 because I've done two kind of uh, unnumbered episodes, but still we'll kind of properly celebrate with episode 100 in October. And just early on, thanks to everyone for for getting me there, for getting this program, this uh, this whole podcast to 100 episodes. But that's enough of that. Let's get into it. So last time, in the aftermath of the Treaty of Karlovitz, the Ottoman Empire was reeling. The Janissaries were continuing to drain the state and resist reform, imposing new sultans at will and rebelling whenever it suited them. Still, despite the setbacks, the Ottomans still had fight left in them. Despite failures in western Georgia, they brought a brief but successful war against Russia to regain Azov. Wallachian Moldavian participation in the war against the Ottomans saw the imposition of Fenariot rule. Locals would no longer rule these territories with the aid of their boyar classes. Wallachia and Moldavia would now be ruled by Greek Phanariots, with stronger power bases in Constantinople rather than in Wallachia or Moldavia itself. Now, feeling like they had some momentum after their victory against Russia, the Ottomans invaded the Venetian-controlled Kingdom of Morea in southern Greece, intent on retaking the territory. The war quickly escalated, bringing in Portugal and Malta in a new Holy League as Austria joined on land. Despite victories on the seas, Venice lost Morea. But on land, the Austrians won several major victories against the Ottomans, conquering Serbia as far south as Belgrade, which itself was retaken. The resulting treaty saw Venice lose yet more territories, while the Austrians gained many including a newly established Kingdom of Serbia under their control. So we lost the Kingdom of Morea, joined, or kind of gained, the Kingdom of Serbia. You win some, you lose some. Now, it remains to be seen just what the Sultans, Janissaries, and the Bulgarians under Ottoman rule will do in response to these circumstances, in particular for the Bulgarians now having the Austrian border closer than ever. Oddly enough, the first thing to discuss about this new era of Ottoman history is tulips. Yes, the flowers, tulips. Now, I'm going to explain why, and in doing so, I'm going to quote extensively from a book I used here called The Ottoman Empire, 1700 to 1923, by Donald Quartert, who described the tulip, what the tulip era was, saying, quote, 
A time of extraordinary experimentation in Ottoman history was so named by a 20th century historian after its frequent tulip breeding competitions. Sultan Ahmed III and his Grand Vizier Ibrahim Pasha, married to Fatma, the Sultan's daughter, as part of their effort to negotiate power, employed the weapon of consumption to dominate the Istanbul elites. Like the court of Louis XIV at Versailles, that of the tulip period was one of sumptuous consumption. In the Ottoman case, not only of tulips, but also art, cooking, luxury goods, clothing, and the building of pleasure palaces. With this new tool, the consumption of goods, the sultan and grand vizier sought to control the vizier and pasha households in the manner of King Louis, who compelled nobles to live at the Versailles seat of power and join in financially ruinous balls and banquets. Sultan Ahmed and Ibrahim Pasha tried to lead the Istanbul elites in consumption, establishing themselves as the social center, as models for emulation. By leading in consumption, they sought to enhance their political status and legitimacy as well. End quote. So, this was a largely peaceful period. You can see there's no mention of war there, and obviously a major war would make it a little hard to finance all of that. But the entire decades of the 1720s actually really didn't see any major war for the Ottomans, which, as we probably notice, is a pretty rare occurrence. The Ottomans at this point rarely go 10 whole years without some kind of a fight. Although the economy was slowly falling behind other European states during this time, obviously then the lack of major wars to spend money on meant there was enough cash left over to fuel all the art and luxuries of the period. But while it may have seemed like a great time for the Ottoman elite, the conditions were actually quite different for average people. Even without nearby foreign armies to inspire it, the more and more Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire were exploring ideas of rebellion and independence. Some did this by arguing their case with the Habsburg court, while others did so at the Russian court. But both powers weren't about to start a serious war just to liberate subjected Balkan peoples. And so the lobbying remained really just that. Now, much of the dissatisfaction of the people arguing in front of these courts came from steadily growing national identity, but also, far more importantly at this stage, from economic pressures. To quote that same historian, quote, The 18th century Ottoman state claimed the right to command and move about economic resources as it deemed necessary. Crops of entire areas of the manufacturing output of certain guilds were commandeered for particular purposes for example, to supply the royal household or marching armies. On the Balkan front, during the later 18th century, for example, nearby regions supplied the army with grain and other supplies, such as rice, coffee, and biscuits, flowed from more decent Egypt and Cyprus. The state also devoted considerable energies to feeding the population of Istanbul, not from charitable concern, but rather fear that food shortages would provoke political unrest. And so innumerable regulations dictated the transport of wheat and sheep to feed the tables of the capital's enormous population. End quote. So you can kind of get a feel there for how the economy was, a, well, I was about to say evolving, but really not evolving, how it was still a bit of a command economy, how there wasn't a lot of stability. And so you know, if we're looking at what's happening in the rest of Europe during this time, you know, the, the slow development of capitalism, 
that stability, the the kind of legal framework that allowed people to invest in companies, things like we've talked before about joint stock corporations, ways for people to limit liability and risk. All these kinds of things allowed for the creation of, of kind of companies and the building of capital that suddenly allowed folks to produce a lot more. None of that was happening in the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman government wasn't really interested in any of it. And even if you wanted to, you know, slowly build up some sort of enterprise, which plenty of people did, there was just a risk that the government would sort of step in and, you know, tell you, okay, all the stuff you're going to, you have, you're going to sell or give it to the army at this particular price. And so the, the kind of economy was slowly falling behind. And also as a result, you weren't getting the economies of scale, which would eventually slowly start to come up with the industrial revolution. But that's still a little bit into the future. Now, there was a flip side to this economic situation for Bulgaria in particular, though, or parts of Bulgaria. Beginning very gradually in this period, many Bulgarian lands would begin to specialize in creating products for Istanbul. Oh, sorry, Constantinople. It's still called Constantinople. Now, this will eventually lead to small-scale manufacturing of wood, leather, and food products for the citizens and armies of Constantinople. Now, on the back of this trade, some Bulgarian families will achieve great wealth, but we'll cover that more in the next century. But just know that while Bulgaria's physical location so close to Constantinople has always made it very easy for the Ottomans to brutally put down rebellions, it does bring some economic opportunities to serve the vast market that is the capital city. Now, I'll also mention here that the other flip side is that while Bulgaria is is you know developing some of this very very small scale manufacturing to serve the capital and things and and it's becoming pretty specialized in doing so at the same time it's falling way behind the rest of Europe and those kind of products that Bulgaria is able to manufacture are not really being exported outside of the Ottoman Empire and they're just completely unable to compete anywhere else so i mean there are some exceptions. I mean, we do know that Bulgarian traders in the 19th century will travel extensively throughout Europe. Uh, if you go to a place like Plovdiv or Koprivchica and you visit these beautiful, beautiful houses of 19th century merchants, you'll see these kind of sumptuous uh, paintings of the places that they visit and traveled in their trading networks and things like that. So it's something you should do if you ever visit Bulgaria, but getting ahead of ourselves. Now, in the Ottoman Empire itself, the way in which the state was running was evolving. Instead of leading armies and truly running the empire, the sultans, as you kind of got the impression of from those quotes, were now left in a position of really just attempting to exert political power through conspicuous consumption. But while the historian Quatert rightfully points out some of the similarities to Louis XIV, there was also a crucial difference. As he puts it, quote, at a moment when many continental European states were concentrating power in the hands of the monarch, the Ottoman political structure evolved in a different direction, taking power out of the ruler's hands. End quote. Now, in another context, perhaps able grand viziers could have run the empire better than the sultans. But the able administrators and commanders of the Koprulu era were now gone. And in particular, remember before, you know, one of the great sources of very able you know, commanders and, and viziers who would come up through the meritocracy was the Janissary Corps. But as we've talked about extensively, the Janissary Corps has evolved a lot and is no longer producing able soldiers and therefore really not producing able kind of commanders or administrators anymore. So 
At the same time, the sultans are losing power. The source of the, you know, really capable administrators and commanders that helped kind of help the empire rise before is leaving. And so the Ottomans are left without almost anyone that's in a good position to really run things. Now, just as crucial, now that the Ottomans were no longer expanding, the empire wasn't really getting bigger anymore. That, in fact, you know, it's getting a bit smaller now. The entire functioning of the empire was changing. You know, we, if you've studied history all, you know, lots of empires essentially fuel themselves on expansion, right? Uh, you know, the United States, when it was expanding across North America, as it's you know slowly starting to do in this period, although the United States doesn't exist, obviously. But, you know, when you've got an expanding empire, there's always more land and resources uh, that you're bringing in that you can, you know, give to the soldiers that you can use to fuel yourself. But once that expansion stops, you need to kind of reconcile what that means and how that's going to change things. And usually it changes things quite substantially. Now, speaking on this, Quatert states that, quote, warrior skills fell out of fashion in favor of administrative and financial skills as the exploitation of existing resources rather than the acquisition of new lands became the major sort of state revenues, end quote. So again, you can see that example there where if you always have new resources to exploit, then, uh, you know, the, the efficiency of your tax system, you know, all, all these kinds of things can be a bit papered over because there's always new stuff coming in. But once you're static or even shrinking as far as kind of land and resources and things like that, uh, if you want to grow your kind of tax base, you want to have more money, more resources, you've got to take more from what you have. And obviously that creates economic challenges, that creates uh, you know, a lot of annoyed peasants throughout the whole empire, people who don't want to be taxed too much and everything, and that creates problems. So in other words, quote, during the 18th century, the sultan most often possessed symbolic power only, confirming changes or actions initiated by others in political life, end quote. So I think that really kind of summarizes it, really, that the sultan now is becoming basically a symbol. More and more of the sultans are only in the Topkapi Palace. They're doing poetry and, uh, you know, whatever it is. And, and when they do try to exert some control, some power to, to make some change, well, the Janissaries basically take care of them. Which brings us to the Janissaries, another group for whom the nature of their power was evolving and changing. Now, I mentioned last time that the Devshirme itself is no more but that the Janissaries have continued to successfully resist all attempts to sideline them, replacing sultans whenever their power is challenged. Well, now that they were kind of less relevant as a fighting force, they're now basically, and they're not also taking in new recruits, they're basically a static group, their role has substantially shifted. To describe that, quote, as garrisons, they physically were part of the urban fabric. To counteract declining real wages, members of the garrisons developed economic connections with the people they were guarding and supervising in Istanbul, as well as important cities including Belgrade, Sofia, Cairo, Damascus, and points in between. There, they became butchers, bakers, boatmen, porters, and worked in a number of artisanal crafts. Many owned coffee houses, for example. By the 18th century, Janissaries either themselves had entered these trades and businesses or had become mafia-like chieftains protecting trades for a fee. They thus came to represent the interests of urban protected classes, including corporate guild privilege and economic protectionist policies, and were part and parcel of the urban crowd. And yet, 
Their membership in the Janissary Corps meant that they were part of the elites. And further, their commander, the Aga of the Janissaries, administratively was still an important man, sitting on the highest councils of state. As they increasingly became part of the urban economy, the Janissaries began to pass on their elite status. Earlier prohibitions against marriage and living outside the barracks fell away, and gradually the sons of city-dwelling Janissaries replaced the peasant boys of the Devshirme recruitment. The last Devshirme levy was in 1703. By the 18th century, the firearmed infantry had become hereditary and urban in origin, a position passed from fathers to sons who were Muslims, not Christian, by birth. End quote. So yeah, that, that was a very long quote, but I think that just so well kind of summarizes how the Janissaries are changing and evolving, and that you know they're completely, almost really unrecognizable from what they were before. So, so they used to be peasants, you know, the children of peasants, the children, Christian children from the Balkans, you know, super, super well-trained and everything, rising up in this kind of meritocratic organization. Now, you know, they're this urban, hereditary Muslim organization that, you know, their primary interest is not being great soldiers and administrators, but essentially in economic protectionism of maintaining the economic and political status quo at all costs, because that's how they basically keep their power. So the Janissaries were now holding back military progress by resisting any attempt to replace them or reallocate the budget which pays their salaries to maybe more productive military investments. They were holding back economic progress by becoming entrenched and protectionist economic powers. And they were holding back political progress by threatening to depose any sultan who attempted to reform the empire. Now, obviously, not all of the empire's problems were caused by the Janissaries, but a lot of them were. You could almost see it as a kind of ironic revenge of the Christian people of the Balkans, except that surely none of these now very Muslim and Ottoman Janissaries would have viewed it that way. But still, it's an irony that the subjected peoples of the Balkans went from making the empire immensely powerful in the form of Janissaries to holding it back in just a few short centuries. Okay, so I mentioned before that there weren't any major wars, but there was one war kind of in the 1720s. Now, during this period, the power of the Safavids, that old Ottoman enemy in Persia, was declining. Into that emerging power vacuum stepped the Hotakis, a tribe from Afghanistan. In the early 1720s, they quickly expanded their territory over Afghanistan, parts of what are now Pakistan and Turkmenistan, and a large part of Persia. There's a map of their territory on the blog post for this episode if you want to see what this expansion looked like. In 1722, both the Ottoman and Russian empires were ready to take advantage of declining Safavid power. Russia launched a war and quickly took much of northwestern Iran, including Baku, Dagestan, and Azerbaijan. The Ottomans invaded from the west and took the remaining portion of the Safavid state, including Georgia and Armenia, bringing the Ottoman border up to the border of the Afghan-dominated Hotakis state. There was a chance conflict could break out between Russia and the Ottomans over how to divide the spoils, and so France stepped in as that old Ottoman ally to broker a peace. All this led to the 1724 Treaty of Constantinople, or, the more apt name for it, the Treaty of the Partition of Persia. Think of it like the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where two opposing empires meet to agree on how to carve up another poor state. In this case, Russia and the Ottomans 
agreed to divvy up Safavid Persia. Now, how did the Ottomans get into a conflict with the Afghan Hotakis, though? Well, their leader, the Afghan leader, claimed the Persian throne. And so he was furious that so many Safavid lands that he felt were his had just been taken by the Ottomans. Outright war began between the two sides in Azerbaijan in 1726. The first battle between them in the autumn of that year was actually an Afghan victory. Now, they had overcome a far stronger Ottoman force by infiltrating their ranks and spreading propaganda about how they were both Sunni Muslims and instead they should really both be fighting the Shia Persians. Still, the Afghans didn't believe there was much to gain by pushing their advantage, and so they entered into negotiations. The Treaty of Hamadan was signed the next year. The Afghans were recognized as the Shahs of Persia and given the rights associated with that position, while the Ottomans were allowed to annex large portions of western and northwestern Persia. During the 1720s, there was also a game of musical chairs beginning to happen on the thrones of Wallachia and Moldavia. You'll recall that the Ottomans had changed their system for ruling these principalities in, in, in kind of response to their betrayals uh, and siding with the Russians and Austrians in the past. Now, instead of working with local boyars to choose a ruler, the ruler was imposed, and that ruler came from the Phanariad Greeks of Constantinople. Under this new system, men like Nicholas Mavrokodatos and Mihai Rakovitsa were beginning to trade positions, becoming Prince of Wallachia or Moldavia many times over the course of decades. Mavrokodatos, for example, enjoyed a modest two reigns as prince of each state, while Rakovitsa was prince of Moldavia three times and prince of Wallachia only twice. Mavrokodatos' son will eventually take the cake, becoming prince of Wallachia on six separate occasions and prince of Moldavia on four occasions over the course of 39 years. So you can get the impression there's a lot of moving around with these positions now. So what brought about all these changes? Often it was simply politics. Various members of different Phanariot families were always competing with each other, trying to convince the port to throw one man out in favor of their candidate. Also, while the boyars no longer held a formal rule role in the process, their displeasure could occasionally force a prince out. Still, despite these changes, things were beginning to shift in Wallachia and Moldavia. The Greek-speaking Phanariots brought more foreign culture, both Greek culture and Western European, to the courts of both states. Still, culture wasn't always advancing. In 1726, while Prince of Moldavia, Mikhail Rakovitsa put four local Jews on trial, claiming they engaged in a ritual human sacrifice of a five-year-old girl on Easter. Even people at that time saw this for the crude and absurd stereotype that it was, and the French ambassador in Constantinople stated that this kind of trial and accusation wasn't something that happened in, quote, civilized countries. In other cultural news, although the first printing press in Constantinople came over with Sephardic Jews fleeing persecution in Spain all the way back in 1494, it was only in 1729 that the first non-religious books were published in Constantinople. For the intervening 235 years, the printing press had only been used by non-Muslims. For example, the first printing press in Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and Wallachia all came in the early 1500s. But printing books in the Ottoman language and Arabic script had been fiercely fought against by the class of scribes. So remember, it was their job to, you know, 
write these books and things, and so it was more economic protectionism. But contrary to what you might think, now that the first press was introduced, the result would not be a sudden flourishing of books and culture. Shukru Hanauru mentions in his book A Brief History of the Late Ottoman Empire, quote, The late arrival of the printing house in the empire has often been cited as one of the major causes of the relative decline of Ottoman science and culture in comparison with Europe. It should be noted, however, that the major Ottoman printing houses published a combination of only 142 books in more than a century of printing between 1727 and 1838. When taken in conjunction with the fact that only a minuscule number of copies of each book were printed, this statistic demonstrates that the introduction of the printing press did not transform Ottoman cultural life until the emergence of a vibrant print media in the middle of the 19th century. End quote. Now, all of this leads us to the culmination of the Tula period in 1730. Now, if studying history has taught me anything, it's that tulips are trouble. Just a century before this time, tulips crashed the Dutch economy. Yes, people became obsessed with them and began investing and speculating in rare tulip bulbs. And eventually the prices got as high as a house in downtown Amsterdam for a single bulb. And then the bubble burst. It was the world's first major asset bubble, and it wreaked havoc on the Dutch economy. No surprise then that it was time for a little tulip trouble in Constantinople. The rampant speculation on tulip bulbs finally annoyed the elites of the city. These people were then basically demanded that the state intervene to stabilize tulip prices, which it did. Subsequently, price and inventory lists were issued by the central government to really closely monitor this economic activity. But still, this wasn't the only pressure that was building because around 1730, other trouble was happening off in the east. The heir to the Safavid throne managed to throw back those Afghan rulers because, well, they were seen as foreigners and were very unpopular. And once this was done and the Safavids were kind of restored, they turned their attention towards regaining the territories they had just lost to the Ottomans four years earlier. In March of 1730, the Safavid forces invaded Ottoman territory, catching the Ottomans completely off guard. The Ottomans were initially pushed back, but quickly regrouped to face the Safavid army. As the two forces met each other, they were roughly equal in size and composition. They began by exchanging musket and artillery fire, causing a great smoke to cover the battlefield, the fog of war. The Safavids then made a quick attack on the right flank, surprising the Ottomans, who soon broke and ran, only to be cut down by Safavid cavalry. In the next few months, the Safavids ran roughshod over the Ottomans, liberating all of the territories they had recently lost. By the time October 1730 rolled around, the citizens of Constantinople, and the Janissaries in particular, had had enough. Furious at the loss of the Persian territories and all the excessive consumption of Ahmed III and his court, they rose up in revolt, led by a man named Patrona Halil, an Albanian Janissary from Bitola, now in North Macedonia, who had already participated in two previous uprisings in Nish and Vidin. With 12,000 largely Albanian Janissaries at his back, Halil was able to quickly take over the city. Seeing his circumstances, the now 57-year-old Sultan Ahmed decided to abdicate in favor of his 36-year-old nephew, Mahmud. The new Sultan Mahmud I 
known as the hunchback, as he had a medical condition which produced that particular physical effect, well, he became sultan. Also, unrelated but impressive, the departing Ahmed III had 16 sons, 23 daughters, and 11 wives, i.e. consorts. So, clearly, sex was also a very integral part of the tulip period and his life of luxury within it. Anyway, Ahmed now settled into a peaceful retirement. But far from stepping down now that the new sultan was on the throne, the rebels also deposed all manner of senior officials and replaced them with their own supporters. And basically, this is where things stood in the winter of 1730, as the winter slowly set in. The situation in Persia was still potentially very volatile. Constantinople was in the hands of rebels, led by a relatively unknown Albanian janissary. And, well, who knows? Who might try to take advantage of the empire's weakness, whether internal or external? But what is clear is that the tulip period is over. Next time, we'll see what will replace it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. Like the Facebook page where I post some interesting history stuff every once in a while and get in touch if you'd like. I always love hearing from you all and well, until the next one.